So good to have you with us here this morning. As you can see, things are a little bit different today. If for those of you online, you might not be able to tell we are doing church in the round. Uh, and it's awesome to have you all here with us. The reason we're doing church in the round is because we're starting a brand new teaching series, which we're calling The Table. Uh, and when you sit at a table, you sit around a table. And we just thought it was important to, to kickstart off. And uh, there's a lot of work for people to do it this way. <laughs> but it's just an awesome opportunity for us to gather around the table of God. So I'll do my best to keep moving and make sure I'm giving you all eye contact. Um, but this series is really is born out of uh, a couple of things. Um, one of those things is that a few months ago, I, I crossed, crossed a threshold for which I can never return, and that is I went from my mid-30s to my late-30s. So anyone who's, who's, you know, experienced that journey before, uh, and I've probably been holding on to the mid-30s for maybe a little bit too long, like I've been saying that 37 is mid-30s, my wife, other members of this congregation have been telling me that no, seven is indeed late, Uh, but I've been holding on to that saying, no, that's mid, but there's nothing middling about the number eight, is there? Eight is definitely late, so I am officially in my late 30s and excited for what God is going to be doing in, uh, in our future, in, in the future of this church and in my future. Um, but I don't know about you, but when I sort of cross certain thresholds in life, I love to stop, pause, and look back. Anyone else love to do that? It's one of those things. You can just pause and you can you know, turn around and say, hey, think back on the past. Think about the good things that God has done in the past. Think about all that... He has given us. And for me, as I look back and I think about, you know, memories and the stuff that's happened, so much of the significant stuff happens around a table. Anyone else? So much significant stuff. My memories put me right around a table, whether it be birthdays, you know, you celebrate that around a table. Whether it be a wedding, ultimately, you celebrate that at the end around a table. Whether even tragic things, funerals, you, you sit around a table. Um, you know, I have vivid memories of sitting at the kids' table with my cousins. Anybody? Yeah? You're going to have to be a bit more interactive this morning, friends. <laughs> sitting around the kids' table with the cousins. Mum and dad are in the other room with the aunties and uncles, and they're being all serious, and we're out the back at the kids' table with the peas on the fork, just psst, trying to hit each other in the face, or, or trying to land on top of the curtain, see if you can get one up there. There's probably still peas up there. <laughs> now I remember as an adult having the conversation with my kids who are sitting at the kids' table with the fork in hand, trying to fling the peas. We are, there's a lot of great memories that happen around a table, and it got me thinking about if the table is significant to us in our lives, how much more is the table significant in Scripture? Because when you examine the Scriptures, time and time and time again, there's this table at the center of a story. Sometimes that table is a place where Jesus is telling the story. Sometimes that table becomes the actual motif for which the learning comes out of. You, know, you, you think about the Passover, which we're going to look at today. You think about even the tabernacle. There's a table in the tabernacle. You think about the temple. You think about the woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet. Where is he? He's reclined at a table. I couldn't help but think about Jesus 
kicking over the table of the money changers in his you know, righteous anger and rage. There's a table going flying. There's just tables all through Scripture. And so it got me thinking about what would it look like if we examined the tables in Scripture and started to study these moments and what is God teaching us at the table? And then I realized as we were doing that, actually all of this, everything we see in Scripture, it always points to Christ. We talk about this all the time, that, that the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus. And you realize that you come to this climactic moment uh, towards the end of Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, Mark's gospel, where Jesus has his disciples at a table. And there they are, they're, they're eating this meal together, and then he goes to the cross and There's something hugely significant about this table because of everything that Jesus fulfilled and all the laws that he fulfilled so that we don't have to uh, abide by those, those laws and regulations to earn God's favor anymore. There is one thing that he left us. And what is it? It's a table. And he, he, he actually calls us to come to this place. He calls us to do this again and again, like the Savior of the world left what we would call an ordinance, which means something we do over and over again so that we don't forget it. And I don't know about you, I'm someone, you guys know me, I'm raised, uniting, saved, Pentecostal, worked Lutheran, somehow ended up in a Baptist church. I don't know what I am. I'm like a, you know, united Lutheran, a son of God, a child of the King. For me, in my expression of worship, and so often this is something that we, we do, but for so much of my life, it was just a religious box that I ticked, if I'm honest. You know, you come to church, maybe once a month, you take communion, you have worship, they go, all right, now we're going to do communion. They read that thing that you've got to read, and you stand up there, and you have it, and then you sit down, and you're like, when's the next song? For so often in my life, this was what this event became. But a few, well, not a few now, many years ago now, uh, we were doing a unit on worship. I used to be a teacher, and we took our year 10s. We were studying worship. What is worship? What does worship look like? Uh, Different churches, different denominations, different styles of worship. And so we took, myself and a colleague, we took uh, two classes, so 50 year 10 students, and we took them to three different churches. And we asked the pastor of each of those churches to come and speak about worship, how they perceive worship, what is worship scripturally. And we went to um, Malvern Uniting Church, and that was great fun going there as they spoke. And then we went to Edge Church, and that was great. And then we went to a Greek Orthodox Church, and that was also a really interesting experience. And I'll never forget, as my colleague and I, who at the time, different people, like really good mates, but we, we saw church differently. I remember walking into Edge Church, and I've been like, oh, yeah, this is my kind of place. Like, I can worship the Lord here. This is great. This is free. Hands up. Let's go for it. And he was like, oh, I hate this. This is, I could not worship here. This is no good. And we talked a bit about that. And then we went into the Greek Orthodox Church with all the bells and smells. And they had the incense burning. They had, like, it was full on. And I'd never been in a place like that before. And I remember walking in there and I was like, oh, this is not me. I do not like this. And he was like, oh, I could worship in a place like this. And I remember sitting there listening. The, the priest came up and started speaking. He was talking about worship and 
the high point of their service is indeed this table. It's, it's communion, the sacrament where you come. And, and he started talking about the bread and the wine and talking about what God has done. And I'll never forget, there I was, I had a migraine from the incense. I was like Judgy McJudgerson, just judging the heck out of this church. Be like, this is terrible. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just convicted me so hard. I had one of the most profound encounters with God I've ever had right there in a Greek Orthodox church. As I listened to this gentle, humble, beautiful, godly man talk about the table. And my heart was just broken before the Lord as I was like, wow, such reverence for the body and the blood of Christ, such reverence for what he has done, such a picture of God's love for humanity. That's the table, the table that we come to. And so it changed my world and in the way that I see communion. And I just felt a few months ago as I went, you know, had that 38th birthday and I was like, we need to look at the table. We need to spend some time as a church, not doing a religious thing, but coming and sitting at the relational table of God. Because that's what this is. This is an invitation. It's not something we do. It's a gift God has given. This is a gift. It's an incredible gift. And it's a gift that draws us in to his presence. The table is a place of intimacy. The table is a place of reverence. The table is a place of laughter. It's a place of joy. It's a place of celebration. It's all of this that God has given us in this gift that is the table. And he invites us into this place, but it's actually the place when we sit at it and when we examine it and we study it, what we realize is it's a place where all the other tables in Scripture are revealed. All the other tables in Scripture come to life and begin to make sense. And so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to look at this table and we're going to look at four of the key tables throughout the good book. And as we do that, we look at this and we look at that and we're going to see the links. We're going to see what God is saying to us in the Old Testament, in Revelation. We're going to see how these tables come together. And my prayer for us is that it just opens our eyes. My prayer for us is that our hearts are just like, wow, and that we'll never, ever, ever see communion the same again. And that from this day on, as we come to this table, we would just be like so in awe and so in love with Jesus that we, the Holy Spirit would just so grab us in that passage where it says, I pray that you would know the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God in Christ. My prayer is that that is exactly what happens to us as a church over the next four weeks. Amen? That's what we're going to do. And we're going to start right here at the Passover. Now, some of you have been a part of this church. We looked at the Passover a, a few years ago now. So some of you have heard a little bit of this before. But my prayer again is just sit with the Lord. Just wait on the Lord and ask Him to reveal more and more and more. And here's the thing, guys. We're going to build a foundation before we can reveal the house, Okay. Is that all right? So what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time laying some concrete. We're going to dig some trenches. We're going to do all this sort of stuff. We're going to help us understand this pattern of the Passover. And then I'm just believing the Holy Spirit's just going to come and drop a little bomb 
and you're going to go, as God just opens your eyes. So with all of that said, let's look at the Passover. Let's come to the book of Exodus in the 12th chapter. Now, the context of this, for those of you who are not overly familiar with your Bibles, is that Israel have been enslaved. Israel is God's people. It's a nation. They have been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. So God did great things. He created this nation. He used Joseph as this this, uh, man, this salvation sort of man, this picture of someone who... Who, who followed God's law, was obedient to God, and God brought salvation through a great famine. Now, 430 years later, this nation is in slavery to Egypt. And God has come and he said, I've heard your cries, it's time to be delivered. And so he raises up this guy called Moses. And through Moses, he performs wonders upon wonders upon wonders. And the whole point of it is Egypt is the greatest nation on earth. It's the greatest power of humanity, and God is humbling humanity. He's saying, your power is nothing compared to mine. He wants the whole world to know. So he raises Egypt up that Egypt might be humbled and God might be glorified. And he does this by plague after plague. And then we come to this final plague, the night that Israel would be set free. It's the plague of the firstborn, where God says, I'm going to come and do one last thing, and you will be set free. And so in Exodus chapter 12, we see the Passover and reading from verse 21, it says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter over the Passover lamb. Everyone say Passover. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. Everyone say ordinance for you and your descendants. Obey these instructions, which means keep doing it. Don't stop. It's not an event anymore. The event becomes an ordinance. This moment in time becomes a moment to remember. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So we see the Passover. We see this picture of this meal that God has given. And it's a meal that involves uh, a lamb. It involves this bitter spices. It involves bread. It involves four cups of wine and a couple of songs. It's an incredible meal. And if you've not looked into it, We're going to dig some trenches. Get ready. If you're a note taker, get your pen out and start taking notes. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to, I want to teach just a little bit into the Passover and show you how it works. Because it begins here with the cups. And what happens is there's a host. And the host is usually like the the father of the house, the head of the house. He'll, He'll come along and everyone's seated around the table. And as they're seated around the table, the host comes along and he pours the first cup. 
And this cup is called the cup of sanctification. Everyone say sanctification. The cup of sanctification. What he basically does is he says grace. He speaks a blessing over this cup. And he, uh, he invites everyone to, to pick up the cup and talks a little bit about what's coming onto the table. And they take this cup and they drink it. And they drink all of it. I've made mistakes by eating and drinking food up here before, but it's a drink. So they take the first cup, right? And once the first cup is, is poured and the first cup is consumed, they move on to the second cup, which is the cup of proclamation. And again, the cup is poured, but this time the cup actually is not consumed. Instead, this is time for the host to regale his family with the stories of old. Is that familiar to anyone? As we sit around the family table, there's the father now. Let me tell you, when I was a boy, this happened. This is what the host does. He regales them with the stories of old. He tells the story of the Passover. He, he recounts what happened. He's like, you know, way back when, God delivered us. We were in slavery. We were bound in chains. We were whipped. We were beaten. We were weak and helpless. And the God of the universe came and brought us out of our slavery. He tells them the tale. And as he tells them the tale, the son, the oldest son, would then say, Dad, why is this night different from any other? Every time, this is what would be asked, and he'd go, well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Let's go there. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5 to 11. And he would read it, which says, Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. He's telling what happened. And brought us to this place and gave us a land flowing with milk and honey, blessing. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. And after he'd read that, Deuteronomy 26 what they would do is they would pick up the second cup and they would consume it. All of it. They would drink. And then once the second cup was taken, they would stand up and they would sing what is called the Hallel. Who knows what Hallel means? It's Hebrew for praise. And that is Psalm 113 and 114. How's Bible study going this morning? Psalm 113 and 114, and they would stand up and they would sing it. And they would just rejoice in what this story of what God had done in redeeming them. And then once they had sung the Hallel, the third cup, which is known as the cup of blessing, 
would be poured. But again, not consumed. Because what would happen now is the food would come out and the food would be eaten. So that feast. That sit down, that start eating and just enjoying everything that was before them. And as they feasted and this cup of blessing sat before it was supposed to point them to the blessing of what God had done. This is how God has redeemed us. That this lamb before us was slain. The blood of this was poured out that the curse of sin and death might pass over us and go upon the sin of our adversaries, but rather he would not look upon our iniquity. He would not look upon our shame. He would not look upon our fallenness. No, no, no. He would look upon the blood of the lamb that was slain and say, I therefore count you worthy, not just of life, but of honor. And so death passed over Israel. And as they ate and they celebrated and it was glorious, it was the cup of blessing. And when the meal was done, the third cup was consumed. And once the third cup was consumed, they would stand up and they would sing what is called the great Hallel. So the great praise, which is Psalm 115 through to 118. And once they had sung the great Hallel, the fourth cup which is known as the cup of consummation or the cup of completion, would be poured and the person presiding over the Passover, the person uh, who had authority to, to minister the Passover to his people would stand up and he would declare something. And often the words he would declare are the words, it is finished. And then they would drink the fourth cup And the Passover was done. And there they were, celebrating, remembering, rejoicing in all that God had done for them. That's the Passover, in a nutshell. That's the trenches dug. That's the foundation poured. Are you ready to have your minds blown by Jesus? Are you ready? I need to know if you're ready in this place. Are we ready? So let's go from that table, the Passover table, let's come to this table, the Lord's table. Get your Bibles out, go to Matthew chapter 26. Oh, this is going to be so good. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the what? The Passover. Oh, that's interesting. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Jump ahead. Let's go to verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now, notice it said, while they were eating. While they were eating. So what's happened? Have they drunk the first cup? Yes. Have they drunk the second cup? Yes. Have they sung the first Hallel? Yes. Why? Because they're eating. 
So the third cup is poured. The third cup is sitting in front of Jesus. They're following the custom. They're following the tradition. They're doing the Passover. Third cup in front of Jesus, verse 27. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, what's that hymn? What's that hymn? The great Hallel. So they've sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Hang on. That's not how it works, Jesus. What are you doing? Stop messing with the meal. This is our tradition. This is what we do. Why are you stuffing around with it? Firstly, you've said a weird blessing over the cup of blessing by calling it your blood and stuff. Not sure what's going on there. That's a bit different. Now we're supposed to have the fourth cup, but what you've done is taken us to the Mount of Olives. What are you doing? Here's the thing. Passover's still in session. Come on, someone. Passover is still in session. You see, we read this and we go, then they sung a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives, and we think the Passover's finished. It's not. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus, everything Jesus does and says has purpose and intention. There's not a word wasted. There's not a word wasted in Scripture. There's a reason Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. There's a reason that they haven't had the fourth cup. is because Jesus is still presiding over the Passover. This means that the entire trial, the time in the, in the garden when he's praying and he's bleeding drops of blood, like sweating drops of blood, when he's doing it, he's getting beaten, when he's getting abused, when he's getting mocked, he's presiding over the Passover. When he's getting the nails knocked into his hands and the cross is getting stood up, he's presiding over the Passover. Everything he's doing, he's still Lord over the Passover. And this is so powerful because what he's saying to us, what he's saying to his disciples, what he's saying to the generations that have come in between us and them and will come again, is I am Lord over the Passover. And this meal is a rewriting of that meal. This table is a fulfillment of that table. The fourth cup hasn't been consumed. He knows what he's doing. He's painting a picture. He's showing us why he came. Jesus knew why he came. He knew that his lot was to come and suffer and die and become. John the Baptist said it. He goes, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Why did he use that language? Because of the Passover. Because the lamb is where freedom comes. The lamb is where salvation comes to the people of God. It's in the slaughtering of the lamb that, the, that death passes over, the curse passes over and does not attack them. The same is true with Christ. He is becoming the once for all Passover lamb so that when he is slain, the curse of sin and death would pass over all of those who are found in him. Come on, someone. So he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives. And as he goes to the Mount of Olives, he's praying. And there's a really fascinating thing that happens. Because as he's praying, he sits before God. And he says, Lord, if this 
cup. It's not a wasted word. If this cup could pass from me, not if this moment, not if this trial, not if this, if this cup, the cup of consummation, the fourth cup, he's saying, God, if this cup, this fourth cup, if I can, if, if there's any way that I can save humanity without becoming this cup, without consuming the wrath of God, without this being poured out upon me, if there's any way, Lord, take it from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And he agonizes in the garden. He agonizes over and over and over to the point where he sweats drops of blood. That is a fierce, powerful image of the pain our God was going through just in debating whether or not I can take this cup upon me. And we come to this meal so lightly. So he's in the garden and he's wrestling with God and then eventually the strength of God comes to him by the Spirit and he gets up and he gets kidnapped and begins getting beaten and then there's something so interesting that happens in John chapter 19 from the 28th verse. Oh, sorry, I went a little ahead of myself. Matthew chapter 27 is what I meant to say. Matthew chapter 27, watch this, this is going to blow your brains. The 32nd verse, Matthew 27. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink. Oh, And the wine was mixed with gall, but after tasting it, after putting it in his mouth, he refused to drink it. Another place says he spat it out of his mouth. They spat it out of his mouth. So they offer him wine. Now that wine was mixed with gall. Gall is like modern day morphine, right? So gall serves the purpose of dulling the senses. Gall serves the, pers- the purpose of actually making us... Uh, not really aware of our surroundings, so it's like supposed to just make it easy when you're going to die. It's just like, well, you're not going to feel it that much. You're going to be that coherent about what you're doing, all right? And so they offer him this one. Now, this, I want you to see this. This is a counterfeit cup. In this moment, as Jesus has wrestled with whether I'm going to consume the fourth cup, and he starts moving towards his destiny and his purpose to become the lamb that was slain, to save us, to become the Passover lamb. In this moment, the enemy comes against him and offers him a counterfeit. He offers him a way out. He says, here's the easy path. Don't go through with it, Jesus. Don't go to the cross. You don't have to drink this cup, man. Just chill out, Jesus. Don't go and do that. Why would you suffer that pain for a humanity that's rejected you anyway? Don't do that. Basically, it's the same temptation that Satan had given him right right back when he came out of the desert saying, bow to me, just worship me. If you worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. What was the temptation as Jesus was hanging on the cross? What did they keep crying out to him? Come down. Come down. Don't die. 
Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross. Come down from there. Prove who you are. Prove who you are. Prove who you are. Show us your might and your power. Come down from the cross. Don't consume the fourth cup. Take the counterfeit. Take this one. This is the easy road. Just drink this. Come down. Everyone will be like, wow, you're amazing. But in so doing, if he did that, he would not become the lamb. And the death that came against Egypt would come against the people of God. Oh, this is so good, people. And he's saying, don't drink that cup. But Jesus identifies what it is and spits it out of his mouth. Here's the question to you and me. How often do we settle for the counterfeit cup? How often does the enemy come against us and say, just take the easy road? Just take the easy road. Why would you stand up for the things of God in a world when everyone else is bowing down to these things? Don't stand against it. Just join them. Just join them. What harm is there in that? What harm is there in that? You're a good person. Life's all right. Just chill out, man. How often do we take the counterfeit cup? How often do we go the way of the world? How often do we bow the knee to the enemy? How often do we chase after the things of this world instead of chasing after the call of God upon our lives? Don't take the counterfeit cup. Jesus spat the counterfeit cup out of his mouth that he might consume the cup of consummation that we might be found in him and empowered by him, by his spirit, that we might go and be his hands and feet on the earth and enter into the life that he is offering us right here at this table. So he spits the counterfeit cup out of his mouth as this awesome final statement. I love this moment. It's like he's just going like, yeah. He's like, get stuffed, Satan. I'm sick of your whispering in my ear. I will not consume that cup. And he goes to the cross and he suffers. And then watch this, friends. John 19, that's where we're going now. 28. The death of Jesus later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant. Interestingly, in the Passover, the lamb was baked with a hyssop. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. And lifted it to Jesus' lips. Is this just blowing your minds? When he had received the drink, what did Jesus say? It is finished. The fourth cup comes to Christ and everything is now done. There's our Passover lamb. There's our king who presides over the Passover and has been presiding over the Passover the entire time. There he is, hyssop, big brush, brushed upon the lamb and he takes the cup and he drinks it so that the whole world would know, that his disciples would know that he has Become the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. In this moment, Passover is complete. And what does he say? He's got the presence of mind. He's got the presence of mind after all that suffering. Do you know vinegar? Wine vinegar is more like modern day Red Bull. It's actually designed to heighten our senses. So when Jesus takes this cup, he's got like this shot which just wakens like even more. He's so alert, every nerve searing with pain, everything that's happening to him. He's so alert. And in this moment of alertness, he says, 
Passover's up, boys. To those disciples, Passover's up, my loves. To his mum. Passover's finished. And with that, he breathed his last breath and gave up his spirit. And Jesus fulfills the Passover. That the people of God might walk in the fullness of the blessing of God. That we might in him, that curse that would just come against us from the Garden of Eden would be done with. Death is passed over. Paul makes a just emphatic proclamation of this. He goes, death, where is your sting? It's done. Why? Because of this table. It's extraordinary. (laughs) This is not a religious act we do once a month. This is the fulfillment of the promise of God left as an ordinance to the people of God that we might never, ever, ever forget. This is... A gift. May we never treat it lightly, friends. This is a gift. Oh, what a gift it is. Band, you can come up. And church, you can stand to your feet. Because we are going to commune at the Lord's table. And for the next... Oh, we got time. Great. We're going to just have a soak. We'll just have a soak in the spirit for a bit. We got time. Praise Jesus. We're going to take a moment to take communion. And when we say take communion, we get to commune with God. And that's what this table means. It's not just when we do this act, this act reminds us of the gift of communion. The gift of communion is that we sit with God every moment, every day He's come to us. Every moment we can come before a holy God and we can just open up our lives to Him and whether we're we're angry, whether we're confused, whether we're upset, whether we're laughing, whether we're joyful, whether we're thankful, it doesn't matter where you're at, God welcomes you to His table. That's the beauty of our God. If you're in suffering right now, Come to the suffering Lamb of God and say, God, thank you. It says He's not unfamiliar with our suffering. He knows. He knows. If you're blessed and you're thankful and your life is flying at the moment, well, give Him praise because everything's a gift from Him. This great and mighty God gave us this gift. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians In the 11th chapter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim the victory of our great and mighty God. So we've got station there, station there, gluten-free station there for all of you gluten-freeers. And this is a chance for you to come and commune with God. Come to the table. Sit with Him. If you want to stay there on your knees, if you want to lift up your hands, if you want to come back and sit as a family and pray, if you want to just get in this circle, you're like, I just need to get right in that circle, then get in here. If you want prayer, just come and get prayer. Pray with someone next to you. Just say, hey, pray for me. But let's turn this space into dinner with Jesus. It's dinner time around the table of God. Let me pray for you. Father God, oh, you're a good God. We're so grateful for what you've done for us. We're so grateful for this table. We're so grateful that you have brought us to this table. We're so grateful that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. We're so grateful. There's not a thing we could do to save ourselves. We were lost. We were broken. We were battered and bruised. And you came to set your servants free. You came that we might be redeemed from the Egypt of this world. You came that we might know what true freedom is, that despite our circumstance, there's a reason for hope. Despite our circumstance, there's a reason to rejoice. Despite our circumstance, there is a reason to give you praise. There's a reason to be thankful for you are with us. Lord, we rejoice around this table. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In the precious name of Jesus, we say, amen. So go, commune with God, commune with your family at the table of God. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.